Well, good morning and welcome, beloved. Good to see everyone here today. I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're in 2 Peter chapter 1 as we return to our series Growing in Grace, a verse-by-verse exposition of 2 Peter. Now, with the celebration of our Lord's resurrection last week, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in 2 Peter. And so by way of reminder, I want to begin reading this morning in verse 5, and we're going to go down to verse 11, as Peter covers in this section a very important topic, the assurance of our salvation. The assurance of our salvation. Let's start by uh, reading our text once all the way through, and then after we can really get into the real meat of it as we apply this um, important teaching. So again, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Here now the reading of God's living and infallible word. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Amen, indeed. Uh, Peter writes in this wonderful section in order that true believers may experience the assurance of their salvation. And given the fact that our enemy, the devil, is the accuser of the brethren and always wants to hit us with blows of doubt and to question our salvation, God, on the other hand, wants us to be certain about our calling and election in his choosing you assurance then becomes one of the more important themes in this short epistle now before we pick things back up in verse 8 which is where we left off last time let me just remind you briefly of how this theme of assurance fits into the whole here the major theme of second Peter is exposing the false teachers. And that theme is primarily covered in the second chapter as it specifically deals with them and their destructive teachings there. Chapters 1 and 3 are then like bookends for chapter 2 as they deal with teaching directed at successfully defeating the deceptions of these false teachers. And in order to fight off these deceptions, the believer must have 
epigenosis, the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowledge is the key word in 2 Peter and is used 16 times in these three short chapters. You must know the truth in order to stand with the truth. And where there is knowledge, there can be no deception. This is a true knowledge, the right knowledge. And so in order to protect ourselves from these deceptions, Peter highlights three defenses for the believer. These are three things that every believer must know, truly know, epigenosis, in order to protect you from falling prey to false teaching. Protection number one, know your salvation. Protection number two, know your scriptures. And protection number three, know your sanctification. And so Peter's point is this, if you know your scriptures, and if you know you have been set apart and are being sanctified by the Spirit of God, and if you know that you are truly saved, you have set your defense against the deception of the false teachers. Now, we've been working our way through this first section of knowing your salvation, and it really began right from the start in verse 1 and runs all the way down to verse 11. This is how I broke it up. We just keep breaking up little sections and digging deeper and, and deeper into these incredible truths. In verse 1, for instance, we looked at the source of our salvation. Or sorry, in, yeah, in verse 1. In verse 2, the substance of our salvation. And in verses 3 and 4 was the sufficiency of our salvation. And now in verses 5 through 11, we are going to be looking at the certainty of our salvation. Being certain that you're saved. We must know that we're saved if we're going to deal with false teachers effectively and not succumb to their deceptions. If you don't know that you're saved, then false teachers can easily lead you astray. And then in verse 5, we looked at the effort prescribed. Notice once again, verse 5. Peter writes, Now for this very reason also, in other words, because of God's saving work in you, because of the complete sufficiency that we saw in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 that we have in Christ, because that's true, now you apply all diligence in your faith. Now, the argument that Peter is building on here is this. If you're going to be certain of your salvation, it involves on your part a diligent pursuit. It involves an effort. The fullness of our assurance is the product of a zealous effort, Peter says, to tap into the full supply of God's gracious provision. And then secondly, we also noted, and this is just by way of review, it not only involves the effort prescribed, but the virtues pursued. And here we go from beatitude to action. And in the second part of verse 5 and running through verse 7, we noted the seven virtues to be pursued. Peter continues there in verse 5. In your faith, supply moral excellence. 
and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Love is the chief. It's the highest rank of the latter. For those who are in Christ, when you pursue these virtues, you will experience the assurance of your salvation. And so assurance involves an effort prescribed, applying all diligence and the virtues pursued, these seven virtues. All right, now we come to where we left off the last time as we come to verses 8 through 11. And here we see Peter's final two points of this section and really the key verses that pull all of this teaching together. So let's look at point number three and the options presented. Peter presents us with two options. In verses 8 and 9, there's one in each of them. You can go either way. One way pursues the seven virtues, while the other way rejects the effort prescribed. And Peter will make the results of these two options very clear for us. So let's first look at the positive option because that is found first in verse 8. If I'm going to experience the assurance of salvation, this is the route I'm going to take. This is the road. Verse 8. Peter says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that little phrase, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, refers to the seven virtues that he just mentioned in verses 5 through 7. And are increasing, um, basically now we have two present participles. The, the first one denotes um, owning something, but abiding also, abiding in that one sense. Um, think of uh, John 15 and the branch abiding in the true vine. Okay? Owning something, we're a part of it, but in an abiding sense. All right? Um, Jesus said, I am the true vine. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. For apart from me, verse 5 tells us, you can do what? Nothing. And so here in verse 8, Peter's saying, if these qualities are yours because you abide in the true vine, and in your life, these virtues are increasing. That's the verb plenunzo. It means to have more than necessary. It is increasing more than necessary. These virtues are um, abundantly present in your life. These virtues, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. If these qualities in your life are in your life and are increasing verse 8 they will render you neither useless nor 
unfruitful. Now let's stop right there for a moment and unpack these two terms. This word useless means inactive, idle. In the secular world, it's used to describe someone who's out of work. It's why actually in James 2.20, when he talks about faith without works, that the King James translates it dead. In the secular sense, uh, it's unemployed, uh, lazy. But in the spiritual sense, it means spiritually useless. And so here Peter's saying, if you pursue these qualities, and if they are increasing in your life, you won't find yourself useless or ineffective for God. And then he adds, nor unfruitful. And this word refers to something that's barren, something that's unproductive. It's essentially the same as being useless, but it's just a little bit different. For example, when Jude uses it in Jude 12, he describes those who hang around just long enough to hear the word, but are like fruitless trees late in the autumn. They should be producing fruit, but there is none. He says they're like waterless clouds swept along by the wind. Matthew 13, 22, Mark 4, 19, use it as they record Jesus' description of superficial believers. When the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth that the new seed that's been th uh, sown into is quickly surrounded by these thorny bushes and it grows all around this, this new plant that's starting to coming out and it chokes out the word, making it unfruitful. Paul uses it in Ephesians 5.11 when he warned against unfruitful works of darkness. It's even used of true believers when we're not being fruitful. As Paul does in 1 Corinthians 4.14. 4, 14. Now, every true believer will produce fruit. Okay? And he will produce it abundantly, not sparingly. Now, listen to this. All Christians will bear fruit, but some Christians don't always produce fruit. All Christians will bear fruit, but some Christians don't always produce fruit. There are times in their life when they are barren. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says to the Corinthians, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, for you are still fleshly. They were like infants in Christ, not because they were newly born, but because they were still acting like the old self. Paul says, I had to give them milk to drink, not solid food. They were like eight-year-olds still being fed out of a bottle. He says, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is still jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men, mere carnal men? So here were men of God who should have been eating steak, yet they were still drinking out of the sippy cups. Why? Because they were acting like carnal men. There was no behavior modification. And uh, beloved, could I just say this is so prevalent in the church today? 
And one of the reasons for it is because the church has turned away from the dedicated, dedicated preaching of God's word, as I just mentioned this morning. Instead, we have swapped it out for 15-minute um, motivational speakers. What did Paul instruct to Timothy to do in the church that I read this morning? He said, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, preach the word. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. And sadly, beloved, I would have to say that time has come. It has come. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 16, you will know them by their fruits. God is not interested in mere um, marginal transformation. He is into radical transformation. Why? To prove beyond a shadow of a doubt who you belong to. If you're looking at someone claiming to be a Christian, you're going, you know, every once in a while, I, I guess if I look closely enough, I see a little shriveled up grape there. But I, I can't be sure God ain't involved in that marginal stuff. Peter says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that phrase, in the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, shows us that he's referring to true believers here. This is what's shocking. You are a true believer. And therefore, through the Spirit of God, you have the capacity to produce in abundance all of these virtues. They are within, inherent within the new nature, as we saw back in verse 3. How? His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. He's provided it. Ephesians 1.3 declares that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Now that was option number one. This is someone who pursues these seven virtues with all diligence according to the effort prescribed and, and sees in their life the increase of these, of, of these uh, qualities and the consequence, they are usefulness, they are useful and fruitful if they are absent they are useless and fruitless well that was option number one so let's look now at verse nine and option number two for he who lacks these qualities again Peter is referring to these seven virtues he who lacks them is blind or short-sighted stop right there and by the way, these are really just synom uh, synonyms, just like uh, useless and um, unfruitful are. He's literally saying this is someone who is blind because he's short-sighted. In other words, he can't see far enough in order to discern his own spiritual condition. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. Now, follow Peter's thought here. If a person pursues these virtues 
he will be useful and fruitful. If he is useful and fruitful, he will be able to identify his spiritual condition, right? Because he can now see the fruit of God's work in his life, he will know his spiritual condition. But, on the other hand, if these virtues are not increasing in your life, a person is blind and short-sighted and cannot see his true spiritual condition. So if you want to enjoy the assurance that you have in Christ, you're going to take number one. Now look at verse 9 again so we can follow this all the way to its conclusion. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. Now watch this thought. This is shocking. Having forgotten his purification from his former sins. See that? Isn't that incredible? Look at that a little bit closer. What does that word purification mean? The word for purification, um, katharismos, it's, it means um, a cleansing. He's forgotten he's been cleansed. He's forgotten that he was saved from his former sins. And Peter is saying here, this is a person who's been saved, who's been purified from his old sinful life, but he's forgotten it. He no longer remembers it. But how can this be? Because he's unable to see these virtues increasing in his life, causing him to become so short-sighted He's unsure if he's even saved. This is a shocking teaching, isn't it? And so, summing it all up, the failure to diligently pursue these moral virtues produces an almost spiritual amnesia. And we've all experienced this before. First six months I was saved, and I was flying on high, but then I can't tell you what happened over the next six months. I thought I had arrived somehow. I no longer needed God's word in my hand daily. Just kind of put it in the shell. We rolled into church for an hour, rolled back home. I put the word back in the shell and did the week over again. That went on for six months. But to sum all this up, the failure to diligently pursue these moral virtues produces this amnesia and if these qualities are not increasing in our lives they will dim one's vision of his own spiritual condition to the point where one will not know whether or not he's really truly been saved oh sure he'll remember some external activity that he might have gone through around the time that he was saved his baptism or if he became a member at a church or but he will not have the confidence of his salvation Richard Bauckham writes in his word biblical commentary this, the knowledge of Jesus Christ recorded at conversion came as illumination to those who were blind in their pagan ignorance. But Christians who do not carry through the moral implications of this knowledge have effectively become blind to it again, end quote. Well, let's move on to our final section because there's more kind of putting all this together. So far we've seen the effort prescribed, the virtues pursued. We just saw in verses 8 through 9 the options presented. And finally we come to number 4 and the benefits promised. The benefits promised. In verses 
10 and 11, Peter's whole argument comes to its great climax. Notice verse 10. And notice how it starts. Therefore, brethren. Now, you know the rule. (laughs) Whenever we see the word therefore, the author is bringing in whatever was there before that, right? And so here he's saying, on the basis of everything that I just said, verses 5 through 9, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. And we'll stop right there for a moment. Obviously, because of what he has just said, you should be compelled to make your calling and election certain because of the tragedy of option number two. You want to avoid that. So verse 10 calls for us to choose option number one. And did you notice how verse 10 sounds an awful lot like verse 5? Verse 5, apply all diligence. Verse 10 says, be all the more diligent. It's the, uh, just about the exact phrase. This time it's the verb form of spuazo. The, uh, the noun spude was used in verse 5. But it carries the meaning of in urgency and with um, eagerness and zeal. To make it it, uh, reflective. It's one of these middle verbs here. To make. To make certain. So. With urgency. With eagerness. To do what? To make certain. And to make here is um, reflective. It's one of the. uh, It's called like a middle voice verb. It means to make certain for yourself, for you. To be sure, to confirm, to know. But why is Peter so concerned about making yourself certain? Because there's nothing worse, frankly, than a true Christian to fear that he or she is not saved. It's awful. It's a state of grief and fear and constant anxiety and doubt and Results from this kind of uncertainty and verse 9 just told us it renders you useless and unfruitful for the kingdom of God. So Peter says, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Calling and choosing, again, are, are synonymous. synonyms. Uh, uh, the calling here is not merely um, the invitation with the hopes of a response, this is the sovereign call of God. I will call my own by name. They will hear my voice. They will follow me. I will go out before them and lead them. Make certain about His calling. We are the called out ones. Those who have ears, let them hear. And then the Greek word here for choosing you, eklage, It means a divine selection to be sovereignly elected, to choose out of. Ephesians 4, uh, Ephesians 1 4 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Whoa, where were you then? What a mystery in the mind of God. Just incredible. But Peter says, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain for yourself about 
His calling you and His choosing of you. God knows the elect. He knows whom He has chosen. But do you have that assurance? Do you have that confidence? Be diligent to make certain that you do. How do I do that? Keep reading to the end of verse 10. For as long as you practice these things, in other words, as long as you diligently pursue moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love, as, as long as you practice these things, the fruit you will produce in your life will make your calling and election sure. And I'll tell you, that is a wonderful confidence to have. And then look at this promise Peter gives. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. You will never stagger, stumble, fall into doubt, fall into despair, a spiritual depression, spiritual grief or, or fear over your spiritual condition. You will never stumble you will always have confidence you will always have assurance why because your calling and election will be sure how because you've been pursuing these virtues and you see them on the increase in your life because you're fruitful and not worthless for the kingdom because you know your spiritual condition you know that you've been saved you know you've been called by god you know you're one of God's elect. And in the confidence, knowledge, and of that you enjoy the fullness of assurance. Beloved, what Peter is saying is that assurance is directly tied to how you live your life. It's actually really practical. Everybody would like to be sure about their salvation. Who wants to live their life in doubt? Anybody? And yet so many do. Some people will say, you know, all you have to do to be assured is I got a little certificate on the back of the day that I was baptized or I got a little piece of paper or a date marked in the front of my Bible when I prayed that prayer or, or when I raised my hand on that day and really that's all the assurance that you need i know that i was saved I, I, i've got it written down here but that's not what the scripture says at all if you want to make sure you're calling an election apply all diligence in your faith with virtues which are evident in your life empowered by the spirit of the living god and as you pursue these virtues they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because you are neither blind nor short-sighted, because you can see that you're useful and fruitful for the kingdom of God, you will never forget that you have been washed clean of all of your sins. Oh, we need this, beloved. This is not optional. For as long as you practice these things, Peter says, you will never stumble. Doubt, despair, fear, questioning. And then in verse 11, the diligent pursuit of growth in the fruits of faith anticipates 
a glorious future. A glorious future. Notice verse 11. Peter writes, For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Now this is an incredible promise. And I want us to consider this carefully so we can reap the blessing that's here. First of all, notice how it begins. For in this way. Now what way is he talking about? Well, by diligently pursuit of these virtues of holiness, he's been telling us to pursue. For in this way, the entrance, the entrance into the eternal kingdom. You might translate that the pearly gates of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. You see what he's saying here? Peter's saying in the future when you enter into the eternal kingdom, you will receive an abundant reward. That is to me the clearest and most direct teaching of this statement. And really, here is another feature of his promise. If you pursue these virtues in your life, you'll not only enjoy assurance here, but you'll enjoy the reward in the life to come. Now, of course, in one sense, we have already entered the kingdom at our salvation. We pass from death to life. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are now living in the present form of the kingdom. We are under the rule of the king, who is Christ. And in that sense, we are in the kingdom. Christ is right now the king of kings, lord of lords, and he rules over his people. Scripture says, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, we read last week, 1 Corinthians 15. But we are still looking for the future fulfillment of the eternal kingdom, which when it comes into its full fruition in the future, we will receive the blessing of our eternal rewards. But for those who are saved and who are going to heaven but did not apply all diligence in their faith, and did not supply moral excellence and virtue, who rendered themselves instead short-sighted and blind, in fact, having forgotten that they were even forgiven of their sins, while in the future you will enter into the kingdom, you will find that you are not going to receive an abundant supply of reward in that day. You will receive praise from God. But it will not be to the degree that Scripture teaches that it's still way above my pay grade to understand that it might have been had you pursued these virtuous things. Ephesians 2.10 reminds us, we, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would simply walk in them. Paul writing to the Corinthian church, and again, 
These are saved individuals, just as he was speaking in chapter 3 about you con- you're, 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 you're acting like you're unsaved. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why, Paul? Why do we have to go before the, the judgment seat? The Bema. What is this? So that each one, even the saved, yeah, each one of you may be recompensated. Oh, for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, this is a totally different judgment than that great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20. There, only those whose names were not found in the book of life were judged. In Revelation 20, the dead, as they're called, are also judged by what they had done. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is to judge not heaven and hell but that each one may be recompensated for his deeds in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Instead of good or bad, a better translation might have been whether you were fruitful or unfruitful, as Peter just told us. We should endeavor to be laying up treasure in heaven for his glory. Remember all the crowns that we receive will be cast at his feet in worship. But we are called to be pursuing these qualities, as Peter calls them, virtuous things. Scripture calls them gold, silver, and precious stones, and not the lesser things like wood, hay, and stubble. For those who have diligently, faithfully pursued holiness, their reward will be abundantly supplied. Now I agree that every one of God's children, when they go to heaven, they are going to receive an abundant supply. But I think here Peter is trying to say that there is an enormous reward for those who by God's grace pursued virtues diligently for his glory. And for our benefit, might I add you. These really benefit us here. Why? You know you'll be saved. Versus living in doubt and despair. And you'll be fruitful versus not being fruitful. So while I believe that all Christians will bear some fruit, it is apparent to me that there is an option that some Christians do choose to take, and that is to make a minor effort at spiritual virtue while others make a major effort at it. Now, Scripture does say that God richly supplies all who are saved. Scripture does say that all believers have redemption through His blood according to the riches of His grace which He has lavished on us all. Scripture does say that in the ages to come, God will show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us all in Christ Jesus. Scripture does say that according to his mercy, he poured out his spirit richly on us all through Christ Jesus our Savior. Scripture does say there are riches of the glory of his inheritance in all the saints. Scripture does say that all the saved have the riches of the glory of the mystery which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so scripture makes it quite clear that there will be no one sitting in heaven who's lacking anything. (laughs) As we worship him, we will be casting our crowns at his feet, recalling those works of righteousness ordained by God for the glory of Christ. And somehow, 
some way within our heart's posture of worship for him, they will burn with a, a unique and special joy as to whatever we did, we did it all for the glory of God. And there his glory will be on full display for us to see the lamb reigning victorious, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. Revelation 21.3 says in a loud voice from the throne will say, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have all passed away and he will say behold I am making all things new so summing up the, the benefits promised the diligent Christian receives two promises the assurance in this life, abundance in the life to come. Assurance in this life and abundance in the life to come. What a marvelous promise. So let me summarize as we close with some closing thoughts. First, let me read this little piece from theologian Benjamin Warfield, B.B. Warfield, who wrote this. Peter exhorts us to make our calling and election sure precisely by diligence and good works. He does not mean that good works, by good works, we may secure from God a degree of election. He means that by expanding the germ of spiritual life which we have received from God into its full effervescence by working out our salvation, of course, not without Christ, but in Christ, we can make ourselves sure that we have really received the election to which we may claim. Good works become thus the mark and test of election. And when taken in the comprehensive sense in which Peter here is thinking of them, they are the only marks and tests of election. We can never know that we are elected of God to eternal life except by manifesting in our lives the fruits of election, faith and virtue, knowledge and temperance, patience and godliness and the love of the brethren. It is idle to seek assurance of election outside of holiness of life. Precisely what God chose his people to do before the foundation of the world was that they should be holy. Holiness because it is necessary product and is therefore the sure sign of election. End quote. Paul in his instruction to the Corinthians tells them a man must examine himself before the partaking of the Lord's Supper. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he tells them again, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. This is what Peter is telling us to do also. Are you applying all diligence in your faith? In your faith, are you supplying moral excellence and the rest? Peter says, good, good. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, verse 9, he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. And Peter says you're in danger of forgetting your purification from your former sins. God wants you to be assured. 
He doesn't want you to have doubt. So Peter says, examine yourself. See if you are in the faith. Look at your life and see that these things are in them. Obviously not to perfection, but that it's there and they're increasing and you know that you walk in the light of God. And then in closing, let me just pose some real basic practical application and why all of this about assurance. Well, first of all, it's in the Bible, so that compels us to look at it. But why all this? Why spend the last couple weeks digging into these verses? Is it really this important? The answer is yes, and let me tell you why. Here's just a couple of reasons. Number one, the doctrine of assurance and the experience of having assurance is important, first of all, because it makes us love and praise God. It makes us love and praise God for His sovereign grace and for His eternal promises. I mean, if I know I'm saved, I'm going to be praising God for that. If I know I'm eternally secure forever, I'm going to be praising God for that and loving God for that. If I'm unsure that I am saved, how can I praise God? Right? These are are very practical applications. How can I be filled with gratitude and with loving praise if I'm not even sure I'm saved? Second, it not only makes us love and praise God, but assurance drops joy right into the middle of our trials. If I know I'm saved, no matter what happens in this life, it's going to drop joy right into the middle of my trials. Why? Because I know that whatever I'm going through is only temporary. And that in itself brings an element of joy right into the midst of it. So assurance allows me to rejoice in difficulty. Thirdly, assurance makes us zealous in obedience and service. Assurance makes us zealous in obedience and in service. If I know I'm truly saved, then I know my responsibility is to obey the Lord. Clear instruction from our Lord. Assurance doesn't breed apathy, but doubt does. Doubting discourages service. Assurance encourages it. I love what Thomas Watson, the English Puritan, said about assurance. He wrote, Assurance will be as weights to the clock to set all the wheels of obedience running. I love that. Assurance is, is the weight that pulls the wheels of a clock and makes everything else operate. Fourthly, assurance gives us victory in temptation. Assurance gives us victory in temptation. Here's why. Because in the midst of the strongest temptation, I know that I belong to God. And therefore I know 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear but with that temptation will provide for you the way out so you can endure it. If I know I belong to God, then I know He has given me all I need to overcome the temptation. On the other hand, if I have no assurance of my salvation, then when temptation comes and discourages me and depresses me, and I wonder if God is even with me or has even supplied me with anything or a way out to endure it. In fact, I wonder if the temptation that's going to damn me to hell is happening right now. 
Fifthly, assurance brings me contentment. Assurance brings me contentment. If I have assurance, it makes me content, though I may have very little in this world, for even though Paul had nothing in this world and was awaiting execution and in prison, he was able to declare in Philippians 4.19, My God, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He said, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Either way, I'm content in Christ. Number six, if I have assurance, it pacifies a troubled conscience. It pacifies a troubled conscience even when I feel guilty and I feel unworthy and I feel sinful and wicked. Like Paul, what a wretched man that I am. My conscience is comforted in the assurance of my eternal salvation in Christ. And I tell you, this is such a great truth because Satan, our accuser, wants to destroy any peace that you have with God. Any assurance that you have with God, he wants to destroy. And if he can destroy that assurance, you'll end up as just another defeated, fruitless child of God, eventually even forgetting, sadly, your former sins have been forgiven. But if I'm assured of my salvation, it pacifies my troubled conscience. And then finally, number seven, if I have assurance, it removes the fear of death. It removes the fear of death. If I know I'm saved by grace through faith and I can face death in full confidence, then I'm going to go from this life immediately into the world of the next where my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will greet me. And he will say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But if I'm not sure I'm saved, I'm terrified of death. So what is the practical application of the doctrine of assurance? Assurance causes me to wake up every day loving and praising God. It drops joy into all my earthly trials and duties. It makes me zealous in obedience to serve him. It gives me victory over temptation. It brings me contentment regardless of what I have in this world. It causes the suffering heart to endure with patience. It pacifies a, a, a trouble. It pacifies a troubled and accusing conscience, and it removes the fear of death. Would you say that's a practical doctrine? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. God didn't have to give us assurance, and yet He does. He says, you can make your calling and election sure for as long as you practice these things. You, he says, will never stumble. And out of the evidence of a godly life comes the confidence of eternal salvation, which provides for you all of the benefits listed. And my prayer for you is that you will enjoy the fullness of assurance of your salvation. If this is an area in your life that you have struggled with. If you would like to have specific prayers for that, be happy to pray with you down front here or after service and, of course, with Sister Elizabeth. And at this time, I will invite you to please stand as we praise our God of the glorious salvation we have in Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. God bless you.